This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and beliefs. Hey, Drew Dixon here, co-host of Humans of Gaming and chief content nerd at Loveline Nerd. I want to tell you a little bit about this episode going to be a little bit different than what you typically hear on this podcast. What you're about to hear is a series of rapid-fire game designer interviews, kind of miniature versions of what we typically do on this podcast. I was recently at Penny Arcade Expo East in Boston, Massachusetts, and while I was there, I did what I always like to do when I'm at a convention, and that's have as many conversations with some of the most creative and fascinating people across the globe. And by that, of course, I mean game designers. And so since I was having these conversations, I thought, why not record them and share them with you? Um, That's kind of what this podcast is all about. It's about the people behind the games that you and I love so much, Uh, what makes them tick, what motivates them, and what they hope to communicate to the world. So so these are our our miniature versions of that um, in kind of three to seven minute segments. And so you're going to hear from Paul Newrath, uh, who co-founded Looking Glass Studios with Warren Spector. And those guys made Thief and System Shock and Ultima Underworld, um, games, immersive sims that have influenced so many other games. You'll hear from Tommy Refinez, who made Super Meat Boy. You're, you'll hear from Jennifer Schneiderite, who's uh, making a fascinating game called Astrogaster that's about interpreting the stars and telling people's futures. You're going to hear all sorts of interesting people and their perspectives on the world and what they hope to do, uh, what they hope to communicate to the world through the games that they make. If you're like me, you find the people who make games to be fascinating and interesting and curious people. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy these interviews because although we get into, you know, mechanics and, and the features of their games, um, I think I think these go a little bit deeper than the typical game designer interview you might hear on a game website, which I love, by the way. I love those types of interviews. But this is, uh, yeah, a more human interview, I think, than you typically hear. So I hope you love it. Uh, if you don't, let me know. Uh, you can send me an email, drew at lovethynerd.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Um, but otherwise, um, yeah, Chris Gwaltney's not with me this week, uh, obviously because these are interviews I conducted while at PAX, and Chris wasn't able to make it. But uh, he'll be back with us soon. But uh, yeah, without further ado, I hope that you enjoy these interviews. So, uh, Paul Newrath, and uh, what is your role with uh, Underworld Descendant? Uh, well, I'm the founder of the studio, CEO and founder. So, um, I got the company underway. My job is to run this, you know, run the company overall. Yeah, yeah. So, involvement in, in Underworld Ascendant. One of the things I did is the start of the studio, uh, we, we, the genesis of the studio is we got the rights to take the Underworld franchise forward as well as System Shock. And that was really, you know, what excited uh, for, for me and Warren was a chance to take these franchises that we had worked on years ago and had been fallow for over a decade. And we had always intended to make, you know, new versions of the games to take them forward. But for odd historical reasons, they had gone fallow. So the opportunity to sort of come back, revisit these, and then 
take them forward was uh, too tempting. Yeah, yeah. So if you you uh, have worked on Thief and Thief games and Deus Ex, and what else is in your 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 backlog? I'm trying to remember. Um, so I was the founder of Looking Glass, where we made the original Ultima Underworld game, System Shock, Thief. Um, Warren, who uh, worked with closely over the years, was also you know closely involved in Underworld and System Shock and Thief. Warren went on to do uh, a new studio that did the Deus Ex games, and then right. more recently was working with Disney and did the Epic Mickey games, yeah. which actually have a lot of immersive sim elements in them as well. Yeah. Um, and then um, with Other Side Entertainment, uh, Warren has joined as a, as a co-founder. He's running the Austin studio, and which is doing the System Shock uh, 3 game, and I'm, up here we're doing Underworld Ascend. Yeah. So obviously, games that you've worked on in the past, like uh, Ultima, Underworld, and and these games have um, influenced a ton of games. Like that immersive sim has been. Um, people have taken your ideas and done all kinds of things with them. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's really flattering. W what are you hoping to do now that you're diving back into kind of a genre that you really helped shape, um, and now you're coming back? What do you hope? to see to bring to the table that's unique with the, the new game well i think we're there's a, there's a lot more to be done the we're still you know g gaming is still in its relative infancy as a media uh, interactive entertainment and for immersive simulations um uh we really want to explore innovate see what more we you know where we can push it and continue to bring it forward you know i think there's more players interested in that kind of gameplay than when we started doing this in the 1990s. Uh, you know, I even see games like uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild have some immersive simulation elements yeah. you know, built into them, mm -hmm. which a lot of people seem to really enjoy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, players who, uh, uh, generation of players who grew up on, you know, playing uh, games like Minecraft. It's interesting, the, the, the creator of Minecraft uh, told us that uh, Ultima Underworld was uh, part of his inspiration for making Minecraft, even though they're very different games. But they share that, you know, sort of openness sandbox gameplay yeah. where you can sort of figure out how you want to play the game. Uh, so we really want to push and innovate. You know, in one area, as an example, is player authorship, giving mm -hmm. the player the tools to sort of come up with their own approach to gameplay, the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay, and how they solve challenges. Yeah. You know, a lot of games, most games, a, you know, a game designer figures out, okay, this is what I want the player to figure out. I'm going to set up puzzles or challenges. And, you know, a lot of the game is figuring out, you know, what the designer has in mind of how they wanted to, you to solve mm -hmm. that problem. And then you execute it, you know, do it as well as you can. In our games, we're really relinquishing control to the players. Right. You know, we're setting it up as an immersive sim. We sort of set the ground rules and the, simu you know, the simulations and the systems, physics, properties, you know, how combat works, we have stealth, we have magic. So we set sort of the rules of the game, but then how the player uses those systems and those rules is really open-ended. Um, our, our litmus test for when we know we're doing our job is players come up with solutions that, that we as developers never thought, oh, you could do that? You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and then we know that we've really opened up the world to the players to explore if you had to narrow it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their experience playing your games, playing uh, Underworld Descendant, what, what would it be? 
Well, it's really the, the satisfaction of, of coming up with a creative solution, you know, an out-of-the-box solution. You know, you can, you for a game like Underworld Ascended, you can, you know, be a fighter type and, you know, use a big sword. And you can certainly do that, and people are welcome to do that. But I think coming up with sort of out-of-the-box solutions that aren't the obvious ways to, to take on an opponent or find your way through a challenge... Um, it's that sense of empowerment and creativity. You know, we yeah. really want to encourage players to be creative. So if that's if that's what they get out of it, then great. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, I think we as a culture like still are on the fence about what we think about the medium of video games itself. But the, everything you just shared are like really valuable tools. Uh, really valuable like experiences that translate into all sorts of facets of life that I think um, your games have the potential to bring a really like unique valuable experience I think that would translate um, to is that something that drives you yeah well you know one thing one lens on this is that you know when I was a kid when you played when you went out when you were you know four years old eight years old you structured your own play. It was you know you think of the word sandbox gameplay it comes from a sandbox, and yeah. when you're living in a sandbox, you just do whatever you want. You know you make whatever play structures. There's no rules to it. We as kids we come up with our sort of own ad hoc rules and change them and play with them. And I think that it uh, uh, for for kids these days their lives are often so structured that they're sort of given, okay, you have to do it this way, and, and it's structured. So I think what's what I feel good about our kind of games is they, they sort of re... They encourage players, younger or older, to experiment and come up, you know, be creative and, and, and yeah. try out their own ways to do it. And I think that's a, a unique uh, capability of, of this media, interactive media. Right. You know, I love great films and books sure. but those are those provide a very you know ne- li- you know they're a linear experience mm-hmm. the author has created the or the director has created an experience for you you sit back and you you know and get, uh, and, and you know enjoy the the ride so to speak here the ride's your own ride you take it in your own direction yeah the wheels in your hands and yeah. i think that's the power that's great so we really want to lean into that as yeah. much as we possibly yeah. can Last question I like to ask designers, developers: um, What drives you to make games? Why do you Why do you do this? Well, I've always made games. As a kid, I would design games for my friends, and we'd play them. And so I've I've always made games and enjoyed the experience. I I enjoy the two things I enjoy most. It's not the games themselves. When you work on a game, you know it loses a little bit of its luster. You've been working on it for two or three years. It's not like a, a coming to it fresh. Uh, but what I really enjoy, uh, uh, one is the teams and just seeing how the teams develop. We have some wonderful people on our our teams. Some of them are quite experienced and have you know worked with me at Looking Glass or worked at studios like you know uh, uh, Irrational and uh, Harmonix and made you know amazing games. Uh, we have other folks who you know they're, they're new to this, or, you know, um, uh, and just see that how the teams gel, challenge themselves, and, and, and be creative is uh, that's one of the you know greatest satisfactions. And then the players, and just seeing how they enjoy these games, and, and hopefully want to see more of this style. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks, Paul. Uh, this has been Paul Neurath, and uh, we've looked at Underworld Descendant, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, thanks for, for, for showing it to me. Thanks for the chat. Refinez, did I say your last Refinus, name? Refinez, yeah, you're Refinus. pretty close, okay, pretty cool. close, yeah. Close enough. Yeah, All right, yeah, cool. 
And uh, you're working on Super Meat Boy Forever, and of course you worked on the first Meat Boy. Yes, correct. Um, and what? Any other games I'm missing that you've worked on in the past that you want to mention? Uh, none that ever came out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Yeah. I'm very much a behind the scenes kind of guy. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Cool. Well. Um, I really love the first Meat Boy, and the, this one uh, is, uh, yeah, tell us what's different about it, because it, you, you have achieved something unique with this one. Yeah. Give us a quick pitch about what's new with uh, in the Meat Boy universe, as it were. Yeah, I wanted to do a sequel. Um, sequels are tough, though, especially when you follow something like Super Meat Boy. Yeah. Um, like, if you imagine, I, I've been using this kind of analogy lately, like, imagine if Empire Strikes Back was... Uh, you were just on a rebel planet again and they went and fought another Death Star. Like, the yeah. exact same thing. Like, right. people would still like it, but it's not going to have that same magic, that same kind of continuation, because sequels are difficult. Um, yeah. So, with this one, I wanted to do something different that felt the same. And uh, around the time when I prototyped this, which was back in 2011, uh, people were putting everything on iPhone, and I was... And a lot of people wanted uh, Super Meat Boy on like iPhone and stuff, and I was like, "This is not going to work because you know you had your directional buttons and buttons on a touchpad. Like, yeah. you know, it doesn't work that way. You're, you're, that, the, yeah, that, the tactile. The thought, yeah, the thought of playing Meat Boy <laughs> that way makes me a little nauseous. Yes, it does. <laughs> like it, the the tactile feedback yeah. that your brain positions your fingers on a controller is. Uh, that's it's essential to a game like this. So it took me a while to get past like, well, that's not going to work, and then actually start thinking about it as people want a Meat Boy game, like something difficult, challenging, and rewarding on their phone. So I was like, all right, I think I'm going to try to prototype something like this. And you know, and I happened to be in a hotel room at GDC, and I just prototyped it, and I was like, this can work. And then in 2014, we actually started working on it, but we only worked on it for about three months and uh, didn't work on it again until 2017. And when 2017 rolled around, I was playing our 2014 build, and I'm like, this has some serious potential. Yeah. I want to I go all out with this. I want to, this is going to be the sequel. I am going balls to the wall. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to say sure. it too loud, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't think of a more eloquent way to say right. it, but yeah. I, I wanted to hit a home run. See, that just doesn't sound as good. Um, but uh, yeah, I wanted. I was like, this is going to be a sequel. I am going to do. I'm going to do something different because, like, I don't want to do the same thing over and over. It would have been easy to just do Meat Boy 2, 600 levels, release it. I cash checks, and that would be it. Um, that would have been easy and profitable, but uh, creatively for me, it doesn't. It doesn't scratch any itches, and this. This is a technical challenge because all the levels are randomly generated. It is uh, a design challenge because you have your two buttons and we're trying to make these levels that feel like Meat Boy levels yeah. in that they are difficult, but they're not, you know, grueling, punishing, like, right. just screw you difficult. Right. We're, we're, we're trying to do something that feels like the first game and I, I, I feel like we've succeeded in that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so, um... I'm curious uh, if you had to sort of boil it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their experience playing Super Meat Boy Forever, what would it be? I hope that they come away with it, and they have when they when they come here. We have a lot of skeptics because you think of Meat Boy, you think of like you think you have something in your head, and people don't like change really. It's it's yeah. it's a hard sell, 
But when somebody tries it out, they come away, and I've heard countless times here, they're like, it's crazy, this feels just like Meat Boy, but it's not. Like, yeah. it, uh, one person actually said, it feels like how he remembers how Meat Boy played. Yeah. Which is, like, yeah, it's just because the level design and the controls are good. Like, I, yeah. Meat Boy's kind of my thing, so I'm not going to make a bad Meat Boy game. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm not going to do that. And you mentioned that all the levels are randomly generated? That's correct. That um, sounds like a pretty incredible it's a, feat to, like, figure out how to do that in a way where with all these intricate platforms and wall yeah. jumps and... Well, so, the way it's generated is it's it's a brute force way. It's not like, there's no algorithm that could create these levels. Like, yeah. it's just, unless I have like a bunch of NVIDIA grid machines yeah. sitting on in the cloud, right. and yeah. But the way we do it is we actually design between 50 and 100 smaller levels, and those levels are about the size of a Super Meat Boy level. Okay. And we give them difficulty rankings, and we uh, we smash them all together into one long level. Yeah. Um, and that affords us different things, like we can make harder levels, or we can make easier levels. We can even track how many times you die on different chunks, and give you like a your own personal hell difficulty. Yeah. And like if you die a hundred times on a chunk, we'll throw that one right back at you, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it gives us all these opportunities to do new stuff with levels while still having complete control over how they, you know, how they play and how yeah. they, how, what the, the intention of what we're trying to get across in the mechanics and everything yeah, with, yeah. with the level. So. Yeah, I'm curious if you have any insight, like what, what inspires you as a designer, as a game designer? I like challenges. I, uh, well... Hey, that, that that's actually both ways. I like challenging games, and I like games that challenge me professionally. Like yeah. uh, technically, I, I love challenge. I I've written my my engine is my engine. I yeah. I don't use Unity or anything like that. I wrote everything. I port everything myself. Um, I like that kind of challenge, and I I like thinking and solving problems. That's kind yeah. of my thing. So for me, that's that's what I like to do. Like yeah. I, I like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I like that approach. Uh, and last question I like to ask designers is, why do you make games? What what drives you to do this? I don't know. Um, I'm, I think I'm decent at it, yeah. and I can make a living at it. And uh, it's a really it's a really easy job as far as like the demand on my time and my my physical and mental energy. It's like yeah. it's just fun to do. Like yeah. it, and I, I'm very fortunate that the thing that I find really fun to do. I'm good enough at that I can make a living. Yeah. Like I, I feel very fortunate every day that I don't have to go and work at a, a, a company or something like that because I've done all that. I've worked yeah. retail, I've worked in restaurants, and uh, yeah, I've worked in tech companies and video game companies, and yeah, I'm 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 very fortunate I can just sit at home <laughs> and make stuff. Yeah. Or not. Great. I can just play Fallout 4 all day if I want to. <laughs> it's not a yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, and uh, when can we expect to see Super Meat Boy Forever? We are know? aiming for this year. Okay, cool. Yeah. Great. And your name is Karen, what's your last name? Carrie Patel. Carrie, sorry. That's all right, no worries. I, I'm so bad about that. Uh, tell me your role on Pillars of Eternity 2. So I am the narrative co-lead on Deadfire. Cool. So, Carrie, um, how long have you been working on Pillars of Eternity? Uh, so, I've been at Obsidian for four and a half years uh, working on the Pillars series. Um, 
Oh gosh, I have to think back about timelines. Uh, we've been on Dead Fire for, I guess, about a couple of years. Cool. And how long have you been in game design? Four and a half years. Okay. My first job was at Obsidian. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Nice. And uh, uh, tell me about the game. Like, Give me a quick pitch. What is it about? What makes it unique? So it is a uh, an RPG, um, sort of a spiritual successor to Baldur's Gate. Um, obviously, a sequel to First Pillars of Eternity. Um, you, the player, you play the Watcher. You can uh, see souls, um, you know, in the in between, and you are chasing down Aethys, the god who has returned and stolen a piece of your soul. So you hunt him to the Deadfire Archipelago, um, which is a, a resource-rich chain of islands that is uh, contested by various factions and nations. And yeah. so you embroil yourself, embroil yourself in the conflict there as well. And if you had to narrow it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their time playing the series, uh, and particularly the new game, uh, what would it be? rich, immersive experience. You know, we recognize that players come to our games for a lot of different things. Um, Some people want combat, some people just want to explore a new world, and some people get really into the story and the companions. Um, You know, obviously my work is mostly with story and companions, but, you know, whatever it is that people are hoping to find, we just, we want to wrap them up in this, you know, really rich world and, um, you know, give them a good time. Tell me about some of the unique challenges. I'm just curious about writing good game stories, because I think... Like, I'm a writer myself, too, and I think people think, oh, I'm a, I'm a decent writer, like, I can write for video games, but it brings it has its own unique set of challenges. I'd be curious to hear what some of those have been yeah. with the series. So, I think one challenge that's common to a lot of games is just sort of the pace at which the player interacts with uh, the game story is much different from the pace at which, like, a reader or a film, you know, film goer yeah. will interact with those stories. Um, and part of it is, you know, especially as you're sort of switching in and out of these different modes of play yeah. like you're fighting one moment then suddenly you're talking to someone yeah um, you know and there are a lot of people who will you know move very quickly through a dialogue because they're really just trying to get to something yeah, at the true. end and so does that frustrate you to think no, that somebody would click through your dialogue it really doesn't because yeah. you know I, I know again we make our games for a lot of different types sure. of players yeah. um, and so you know my goal is to provide a good experience for everyone and something that even the people who just kind of want to get to the action can enjoy. But, you know, I realize that there are a lot of people who love this story and those are the players I'm looking to serve as well. Um, But yeah, so you have to be a lot clearer than you think you do. And um, sometimes you have to make sure to provide information in multiple places and in multiple formats. Um, And it's still very easy for things to get missed. Um, So I, I think just being being super clear uh, and specific and giving the player plenty of opportunities to find important information is key. And the other thing that's a little more specific to the style of game we make is uh, the challenge of branching narrative. You know, whether you're looking at a dialogue tree or even just the way your story can change uh, based on the decisions you make as a player or the order in which you approach content. Um, Sort of planning all that out, sort of getting all of the options into your head and then knowing how to scope and address them is a really big challenge. I think a lot of uh, people who consume games, play games, don't always think about uh, the fact that the story you're writing is not just one story. It's really like like potentially thousands of different stories. Uh, And it's really really hard work. Um, What what do you find most rewarding about it? Um, You know, I think creating something that 
is going to feel personal to a player. Yeah. Um, and having, you know, having those interesting branches is part of it. You know, saying like, you've come into this world maybe to be a hero, or you've come in this world, um, you know, as sort of this rascally rogue, and saying, you know, you can be any of those characters you want to be, and we're going to support you in that, and we're going to give you options that are going to feel. Um, validating for that characterization and that are going to make this adventure feel personal to you. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and one last question I like to ask designers uh, and developers is, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Um, I I love playing games and I and I love story. Uh, you know, I grew up playing a lot of the Sierra Adventure games. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know, I've just... I've always, I mean, I, I also read a lot, but I've always loved uh, the opportunity that games offer to provide players with a story that is immersive and interactive, yeah. um, you know, in which they kind of get to, to step into the shoes of the main character, um, you know, in a game like this, make choices uh, about, about the world around them and about how they want to proceed. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you said you like to read a lot. I'm curious if there's any books that have really inspired your writing for, for the games or that have been interesting to you? Not specifically. I mean, I, I read, uh, I like a lot of science fiction and fantasy, but I read fairly broadly. Um, you know, and I, I like a lot of different kinds of books. I, I think you can find good characterization and good world building yeah. and, and, and anything. So I'm I'm just always on the lookout for a, a good story, beautiful writing, and interesting characters. Yeah. Cool. And uh, when can people look to see Pillar of the, Pillars of Eternity 2, the new game? May 8th. Okay, cool. And PC, any other platforms? PC, Mac, and Linux. And uh, at the end of this year, we'll also come out with um, console ports, including one for the Switch. Oh, awesome. Cool. Well, great. Thanks so much. There we go. All right. So uh, tell me your name again. Juan. My name is Juan. Okay. And what's your last name? Uh, Juan de la Torre. Okay. Yeah. And where are you from? I'm from Madrid, Spain. Okay. And how did you get into making games? Uh, well, I, um, like, four years ago, I finished a degree on game design back in, in Madrid. And we we were supposed to make, like, a project for, for the end of the... Uh, for the end of the degree. And we made this game called The Guest. We... we we started traveling with the game, like showing in showcases, whatever, and we managed to to get a publisher interested in the game. It was uh, Five O Five Games. Yeah. Uh, so they published the game, and we we managed to get like some like proper money to build like the studio and and hire people and start making this game called Solo. Yeah. So that's that's the way we like sneaked into the industry. Yeah. Cool. Give me a, a quick pitch. What is Solo? All right. Solo is a metaphoric, introspective uh, puzzle adventure in which you play as a sailor who travels um, a, a huge, colorful, dreamlike archipelago, solving puzzles and wondering about love relationships and romance. Yeah. Yeah, and as I was playing, I noticed that it... Um yeah, it definitely encourages you to be introspective about what you think and what you believe about love, which is a really unique angle for uh, for a game. What made you want to make a game about that's so personal about love? Yeah, that's a bit tough. It's a tough question because um, the whole idea of the game uh, and the questions and the love theme behind it come from a, like a breakup I had like three years ago. 
Yeah. With uh, well, uh, I was with this uh, with this uh, girl, and everything ended like so sudden. I didn't even know what what was going on, and all these questions start popping popping in my head, like why did this happen? What did I do wrong? And 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 that's that's the thing we wanted to like portray in the game, like yeah. uh, a game who can like communicate with you and ask you the right questions to to understand what you think about love relationships. Because my my perspective or my my experience. Uh, I have like awesome friends, but we never like discuss love like in all relationships like really deeply. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to create like this safe environment, this safe uh, world where you can like introspect and feel like like you have like your own space. Think yeah. where where no one is gonna judge you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you talked? I'm curious of. Uh, what player reactions have been to it uh, in, in that regard? Do they feel like, um, yeah, what, what, what's their response to playing a game that's about love that's, and, and introspective about love? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, it's funny to, to watch people play because they, when they uh, come to like a showcase like this and they start playing, they don't really know what's the game, uh, like what is it about, whatever, and, and all these questions start popping into the screen. And they're like, whoa, what's this? And and I think one of the most interesting experiments we had was a, a couple playing together. And all the questions start getting more and more demanding. So, for example, it was, it, there's a question that says, you will, you, will you will like your current love to be everlasting? And I remember the girl was playing and he was like thinking about it. And after 10 seconds, she said, "Yes, I want. I want it to be everlasting." And the boyfriend on the other side like, said, "Like, what took you so long? Why are you? What, like, what, what were you thinking? Like, what? What is this?" And they started like talking about it, like having like a like a chat about yeah. what was going on. And it was it was really funny to see them yeah. like actually engaging with the questions and like uh, bring them to the real life right yeah as I was playing I couldn't help but think what it because I'm married and uh, what it would be like to play with my wife yeah. you know and what her answers would be and uh, it's the thought is kind of scary does that like like this example you gave earlier of playing it with your partner yeah. could, could potentially be scary because what would their answers be but I also think that um, like we have to have those scary conversations with people and the people that we love or else we don't take steps towards intimacy and meaningful relationships so I really appreciate that you've made a game that kind of like yeah uh, that's that's daring in that regard yeah it's a scary but scary good I think like yeah. it, it will get you uh, like some to be like probably uncomfortable at some points but I think that it's all for a good sake that being like uh, aware of what what you're thinking so so is that like your ultimate goal to help uh, players be self-aware of their their ideal of love, their thoughts about love. Absolutely, the main idea behind the, the game is to have like this conversation with the game and with with yourself to to like get to know what is your honest truth about love relationships. What's what you really think about it, yeah. and 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 hopefully to bring all this all these things you. 
you discovered in the game and 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 use them on, in, in real life with your partner with your ex-partner with your friends whatever like just to be more honest yeah. in your actions and in your thoughts yeah yeah i love that i love that concept um last question i like to ask designers why do you make games what drives you uh well i think i think and actually i think solo is a good example is that you can only have like these experiences if if it's interactive i mean you cannot read a book like solo you cannot like watch a movie like solo you can only have it uh, in a game you know you can you, i think it only makes sense if you feel the whole atmosphere about it if you like play with the animals you play guitar if you take photos if you like just sit in a bench and think i think the cool thing about video games is to make things that cannot be uh, they cannot exist outside the media yeah yeah that's yeah, great well thanks so much for uh, for showing it to me yeah thank you, thank you. All right, I'm here with Dan Cox, right? Your yes, and yeah, Dan are, Cox. Yeah, and your role with Below is? Uh, artist and producer. Cool. So uh, just give me a real quick pitch. What is Below? Uh, Below is a roguelike where you are heading through a very big world as a very small character. Every time you die, and it's very easy to die, you come back as a new wanderer stepping through uh, this big, vast world, uh, trying to survive a very, very harsh environment, and learning more about uh, what lies below. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the things that people notice immediately when they play below is kind of the, um, like, how tiny your character is and how much of the world you see at once, because it's sort of this top-down sort of view of the world. But it, it just feels, you feel really small and the world feels massive. And I don't think you see that in a lot of these types of games. Not that, that you, obviously Below is kind of unique, but why do you think that is that that's not uh, an aesthetic that you see very often? Um, one reason would be it's really easy to get caught up in, in wanting to show off characters. Uh, because that's, I think, how a lot of people relate to games and, and things like that, is they see a character and they get really excited about that character. And in what we're doing is we have a very, very small character, so it's hard to get immediately invested in that. And so it's kind of hard to get a team jumping on to something where you are really diverging from the norm. Um, our creative director, uh, Chris Petrowski, uh, really likes to deviate from the norm and to to change ideals and things like that and so that's easily where this kind of idea can come from uh, but I mean from a development standpoint it's also hard um, because you want to show off a lot with the character but you do not have a lot of pixel space to do that uh, 4k is helpful in that actually yeah. um, which surprised me but being able to see the character in 4k does actually show off a lot more than a person would normally see, uh, which is neat. If you had to narrow it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their experience playing below, what would it be? Ideally, it would be a, a really interesting mix of calm, uh, relaxing, stressful wonder, uh, where you're stepping through this place and gradually beginning to get a better understanding of this world that's really not telling you anything about itself, but you can gradually begin to unpack in 
this quiet, dark, and foreboding place. Um, so it'd be great for them to, to kind of feel like they're in a, a, a really alien place and to begin to really learn something about it and, and feel that kind of accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. I think I uh, I noticed some of that immediately. It's uh, got a really unique aesthetic, and um, yeah, it feels really calm and cerebral in a way. Yeah. And then you're and then you die, and it's really sad. So um, I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. Uh, one last question I like to ask uh, developers, designers is why do you make games? What drives you to do what you do? Oh boy, I I really like making games because it's kind of the only thing of this nature. Um, I, I'm originally an artist, primarily. And for me, if I went into film, I would be working on specific shots and things like that. I, I wouldn't be able to play with the art that I make as much. I wouldn't be able to walk around it and step around it and, and be able to invest my time and interest in lots of different things. Plus, with games and with most studios, you, you get a lot more play with what you're doing. Uh, than you do with something like film or or most other mediums. So for me, games, I I almost actually get to play more as an artist, which is really neat than if I was doing any other kind of uh, any other kind of art. So for me, games are just it, it's kind of play the whole way along, even though it's obviously like a whole hell of a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it is a ton of work. But yeah, that's interesting. Playfulness is something I think maybe games. Like, obviously what makes games unique, but um, I think in this day and age, there's a lot of games that don't feel super playful because they're constantly telling you exactly what to do all the time. Um, Is that something that you guys are directly kind of bucking against? Um, I think so. I I don't think there's anybody uh, at Cappy that is a super big fan of constantly being told to stop and, and be told what to do. I don't disparage any of the teams that do that because it's really hard yeah. to make sure that uh, that you're being fair to a player and telling them yeah. the information that they need to enjoy the game. Mm. Um, because if people don't know a core function of the game and they're not having fun because they don't know about it, it's super frustrating and they're right, the player is right to be frustrated. Yeah. Um, so it's really, really hard to find the right balance of trying to not tell the player anything uh, while simultaneously giving them a cohesive experience. Um, we definitely, I think all of us really like the challenge, but good God, it is a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. And uh, I know this has been in development for a while. Do you have a kind of release window for this? Yeah, our release window is this year. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, it looks great. Thanks so much. If you had to narrow it down, I know we like you shared a ton of information, but give me like the quick pitch. What is Scum? What makes it unique? Well, uh, I would say that it's the next generation of survival games. Uh, that, that's the shortest way I can say, but you yeah. know, you will have to try it. It has different layers of gameplay. It's like onion. Yeah. You can peel whatever you want. You can try whatever you want. Maybe eventually you will, you know, bite in it more, take more. Maybe you just, you know, want some action. Yeah. So we provide players with options. Yeah, That's it. yeah. You guys, and you've, you've 
crammed a ton of detail into it, but you've also made it accessible so that if people don't want all that detail, they don't have to bother with it. Yeah, which I think is a really smart design choice. Yeah. Yeah, because what we have learned that we're actually not making games for ourselves. We, we, we want our games to be well played, well popular, yeah. and people like different stuff, so we have to be open. Yeah. And uh, and you're from Croatia? Yes, from is Croatia. Is that your whole team is? or? Yes, whole team from okay. Croatia. Cool, that's great. Poor country. Yeah. 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 So uh, I'm sure what you're doing is probably that's why we, we working on survival and inspiring game. Inspiring yeah. to people there. And uh, well, uh, I, I believe that we're well, uh, more well known for, uh, outside for, uh, of Croatia than than oh, uh, actually really? Croatia. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh. Well, maybe you can. This will blow up, and you can make a difference uh, there. Well, maybe, but we don't care. You about, don't care. You know, we don't yeah. care much. Uh, yeah. we, we're just happy that we can live in our own country and you know, like uh, work uh, on making games. Uh, the job which is probably for us the best job in the world. So, yeah, yeah, uh, that's cool. And so if you can narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope a player gains from their experience playing Scum? Yeah, fun. Fun. Yeah. Cool. And, and, and the other thing, maybe they will learn something uh, that they can actually use eventually in real life. So. Yeah, yeah, cool. And uh, last question I like to ask designers is, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Well, uh, I love to do it. It's not. Um, it is hard, but when I come home, most of the time I don't feel tired. So yeah. it's full enjoyable. And to be able to bring life, I, I cannot describe you how, how fantastic this is. So what we do, you know, uh, we have art that makes models, and we have programmers that actually uh, uh, bring life in these models. So we, we are sort of creating synthetic lives. Uh, by creating AI, uh, by providing players with options of different game mechanics, and then you actually see that some of the game, some gamers are playing the game better than you have imagined that ever that game can be played. They actually can, they can evolve regarding the gameplay style. That's the best part of the game uh, game development for me. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And uh, tell me your name again. I'm sorry. I'm Tomislav. Okay. How do you spell that? Uh, like. T O M I S L A V. Okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. That's right. You can call me Tom. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I really enjoyed getting to meet you and seeing the game. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you. Welcome. Bocamazzo. Bocamazzo. Everybody, everybody just calls me Dr. B. <laughs> okay. And your first name is? Rafael. Rafael. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm here with Rafael, Dr. Rafael Bocamazzo, <laughs> whose name I butchered horribly earlier, uh, and he laughed, which is nice. Um, but yeah, tell me, where are you from? Uh, Seattle, Washington. Yeah. Obviously, you have a very Italian last name. We were talking about that, but, but, you've been, but your family's been here for a while, I assume. Uh, in Seattle? Oh, no, I mean in the States. Stuff, oh, yeah, yeah about a, um, one side of the family, a little over 100 years. The other side, okay. I think about three. So you're, so you're not really, like, culturally Italian, or do you still hold on to that at all? Well, Italian-American culture is a whole separate culture unto right. itself. Gotcha. I mean, it's not really Italian, and um, there's a lot of things that we think of as, a, you know, quote-unquote Italian that are really Italian-American. So, right. I, yes, I still consider myself very Italian-American. Okay, nice, cool. And uh, you work with Take This, and uh, tell me a little bit about Take This. What do you guys do? Well, Take This is a mental health nonprofit largely focused on the gaming space and both on the industry and the consumer side. We want to make it okay not to be okay. 
mental health issues, mental health challenges, regardless of whether they raise to the level of a full diagnosis or not, are extremely common. One in four people in the United States are going to be diagnosed in their lifetime. Uh, and depending on the methodology of the study looked at, it goes even higher than that, as high as one in two. And yet we still don't talk about it for fear of shame, reprisal, whatever. And take this, our entire mission is dedicated to making it okay for people to talk about it, eliminating that stigma. Mm-hmm. And why is it important to do that kind of work, particularly in the gaming industry and in gaming culture? What what drew you to this space? Well, we're gamers. Uh, we're absolute gamers. Uh, I've still got a framed copy of Nintendo Power issue number one at home. Uh, I've been playing D&D for over 20 years. Our founders, two of them are veteran video games journalists. So this is our community. Yeah, yeah. And I read a little bit, um, I feel like I read a little bit about how you guys even will use games as part of... In sort of a therapeutic way, is that true? Well, that is something some of our clinicians, including I, do. Take This doesn't actually provide any sort of treatment. We provide education and outreach. And with over 400 clinicians that are on our volunteer roster, and that's just the clinicians, we have a lot of clinicians doing some really cool stuff. And the applied use of games is certainly one thing that some of our clinicians uh, some of our clinicians are very good at using and very keen on using. Yeah, yeah. So can you give me an example of, of a way you've used, you personally have used video games uh, in that space? Well, I actually don't use video games per se. Uh, what I, I'm actually the lead facilitator of a, an applied Dungeons and Dragons program in Seattle, okay. Washington, and to teach social skills uh, to often teenagers on the autism spectrum. Yeah, yeah, that's cool because I think there's this perception of people outside gaming culture that look at it and go like, oh, there's a bunch of like socially awkward or socially inept people. And that's not really the case. Like games really can bring us together, right? Well, very much so. And I think, you know, if you look at some of the data that um, the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association, has been coming out with in the last 10 years, you can see that gamers have grown up. We're no longer, we're no longer the outliers. We are the mainstream culture. I mean, you look at the success of the the MCU, all the Marvel mm-hmm. movies. It it shows that you know we're not the weirdos anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, can you tell us um, some things to be looking for? What are some ways people can get involved and support what you guys are doing? Well, you know, as any nonprofit, the best, you know, a great way to support us is give us money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have our uh, Patreon page, uh, patreon.com forward slash take this org. Uh, if you want to be a volunteer at one of our shows, you can email us at info at take this dot org. You can go on our website and see our expert content, take this dot org. We have some wonderful mental health resources on there, uh, all about our AFK room, which is the first of its kind staffed mental health space that we provide at major video game conventions um yeah those are some great ways of getting involved with us yeah cool and uh what would you say to someone who i don't know there might be someone listening to this who's feels like they might be struggling with uh mental illness um what's the what's the first step for them well, for the first step is, of course, recognizing that you are, in fact, struggling and understanding that it's more common than you think. Mm-hmm. And it is okay that you're struggling, and it's okay to reach out for the help that you need. And we have a great list of resources for how to reach out for that help on our website, takethis.org. 
please, please don't feel ashamed because you are not alone. It is so common mm. and there is hope and help out there. Yeah. What about for the person who's close to someone who might be struggling? How can they be helpful and encouraging and, you know, um, relating to people in your life who who may be struggling with with a mental illness or issue? Uh, That is a question we get all the time, and we actually have some wonderful articles on our website about exactly that. But one of the things I would say is treat them with empathy. Don't immediately try and problem solve. Listen to what they're going through and just try to empathize. Don't try to necessarily fix because especially if somebody is suffering from, let's say, major depressive disorder, questions, uh, questions like, well, I just don't understand why we can't fix this can actually add to the problem because the person already feels guilty about the fact that they haven't been able to fix this on their own and they're beating themselves up internally because of that. So just listen, empathize, be willing to sit with them. That's it. Um, I'm here with Jennifer Schneiderite. Schneiderite? Did I say it right? Okay. And uh, you did Tengami in the past, and now you're working on a new game called Astro Glaster. Astro Am I saying it wrong? Uh, nobody really knows how to pronounce it, but I okay. think it's Astro Okay. Astro Got it. Okay. I put an L in there, I think, that's not there. Anyway, um, so it doesn't have anything to do with blowing up stars or shooting things, which when I heard the name, that's what I thought of for some reason, like like a asteroid, you know, yeah. but uh, it has to do with astrology. So yeah, tell me, give me a quick pitch. What is the game? What makes it unique? So you're taking on the role of a man called Simon Foreman, and you are a one-stop shop for everybody's problems in 16th century London. Yeah. And uh, problems can be uh, medical issues or personal problems, marriage counseling, or my dog ran away, where is it? And uh, the way that you ha- that you train to help these people is always the same way by um, casting an astrological chart and trying to find out what the stars have to say about your client's yeah. problem. And there can be up to four possible interpretations. And uh, the player, as the astrologer, needs to make a judgment call yeah. what the one true meaning of the stars is. Yeah. And depending on what you choose, there are short-term and long-term consequences that affect your client's life, yeah. but also your relationship with the client. So, for example, they might start losing their trust in you if the advice that you give them turns out to be consistently yeah. bad. Right, yeah. So you're trying to manage these relationships, and also uh, your interpretation of the stars is actually influencing the way that people live their lives as well. Exactly. So how, uh, those con- how those consequences play out, I assume, is part of... What makes the game unique, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, if you think about it, of um, kind of like story exploration through astrology, yeah. but also kind of like relationship management by astrology. Yeah. It's maybe the right. best way to describe yeah. it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and you were saying this is based on some like a guy who literally did this kind of thing in London, and what, what, what was the in time the, frame? In the 16th century, in the 16th yeah. Century. So Simon Foreman is a real historic figure, like he wasn't famous. Yeah. But so at the time, because uh, 
the, me the, me the medical establishment didn't actually know much about medicine, right? This was yeah. a time when there was a lot of bloodletting and purging. Yeah. Like if you needed to go to a doctor, I mean, I wouldn't go, right? If I know that they pur that they start purging me. Yeah. And so there were a, a number of medical astrologers that were kind of like alternative doctors. Four player games. Yeah. And the Simon Foreman was a medical astrologer. And uh, what was interesting or what is good about him is that he wrote down uh, kind of all of the patients that came to him, like yeah. he took notes. Yeah. And his case books have survived uh, to this day. And about 25 years ago, a woman called Lauren Cassell found uh, Simon Foreman's case books in a library in Oxford. And she figured out over the course of 25 years that these case books are medical records of people yeah. that Simon Foreman tried to help by doing astrology. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. And uh, there's a humorous element to the to the game, right, as well. Um, I'm curious how you approach that because there's there's a lot of games that try to be funny and I think fail. But I played it just now and found myself laughing out loud on a couple of occasions because of, of uh, I guess, decisions I made having some consequences I didn't think about. Um, Yes, so, yeah. so I think it's a mix. So for one, the, the base material, like people really came to him with the craziest problems, right? Yeah. So we can do a comedy best of, of kind of like all of his cases. But at the same time, we are very conscious that we don't want this to be a dry history exercise, you know? Yeah. This is what was important to people back in the day. But what, so we're always trying to find a, like a parallel in the now. Yeah. And uh, so... You know, we have a lot of, uh, we have one client, for example, um, he's going to come because he wants to invest in a daffodil coin, and that's based on a story, I don't know if people know about the tulip currency, so tulip as in the flower. Okay. It's, it's basically similar to Bitcoin. Okay. Well, for a short period of time, uh, people thought that tulip would be like the new it currency. Yeah. And everybody did really bad investments in tulips. Oh, gosh. And so we had always tried to kind of like link it to something yeah. modern. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, if you had to narrow down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their time with Astro Gasser? Mm, I think I just really hope that people are laughing at it. You yeah. Know, because it's also a little bit laughing at yourself. Yeah. And um, gaining an understanding maybe, you know, for the problems of the little people in history, because we always hear about the big names, you know, Queen Elizabeth, yeah. William Shakespeare. But what of the people of you and I, you know, what were our problems, yeah. our worries, our hopes, uh -huh. and how did this kind of like manifest itself in, our, in the relationship that we had with our doctor or therapist or yeah. counselor, right? Because yeah. Simon Foreman is really all of these things to his clients. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And then uh, I, I wanted to ask you also about, I know I noticed on Twitter recently that you're involved with a, a new initiative to um, help encourage uh, female game designers. Can you tell me about that? Is that the girls behind the yeah. games campaign? Yeah, so yeah. It's, um, it's a campaign that was launched in New Zealand. And the, the, the website is just, I think, girlsbehindthegames.com. And it's to shine a light on uh, kind of like all of the roles that women fulfill in the games industry yeah. and encourage, uh, you know, more women to, to join the games industry. Yeah. Because I think we are still only at uh, 20%, it's only 20% women in the games yeah. industry at the moment. Right. And obviously we are all hoping that 
to be like a more of a 50-50 yeah. you know, going forward. Yeah, so if, uh, if people want to go check that out, go to girlsbehindthegames.com. Is that? So. Okay. not entirely sure okay. what the domain name is. Okay, cool. Well, we'll be looking for that too because I know some of our listeners would want to check that out and I think it's really cool what you're doing. So, yeah. And uh, last question I like to ask game designers, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? It's a really hard question because I've always wanted to do it since I was a little girl. Yeah. And I think the reason why six-year-old Jennifer wanted to do it because video games really captured my imagination at the time yeah. of what games could be and what games could be about. Yeah. And... Um, I think obviously in the past couple of years, uh, indie games and also I think AAA, you know, are picking up on it. Like we're trying yeah. to see, we're trying to understand that it's not enough that our games are just a mirror image of what the world is right now. Yeah. But that we need to pick up the responsibility and also show people what the world could be yeah. via the medium of video games, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's one thing to always say, you know, the world could be that way, but it's more powerful if you can people can actually see this kind of world, be in it in a virtual sense and yeah. have an effect, you know, affect it. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's really why, why I love video games so Yeah. Much. Yeah, that's cool. That's encouraging to hear. Well, thanks for your time, Jennifer. All right. So, Richard Rouse, am I saying your last name right? That's right. Okay. Like house. Yep, yep, cool. Yep. And you are the director of this game. What is your title? Yeah, I'm the director, designer, writer. I do a bunch of the programming, too. Okay, cool. So. Yeah, so give me the quick pitch for those who haven't seen Church in the Darkness. Yes. What, what is it? So the Church in the Darkness is set inside a religious cult uh, in the 1970s. Uh, they've been frustrated with America, and they feel persecuted there. So they've moved down to South America, and it's an action infiltration game. So you're trying to get into the cult. Try to find your nephew Alex and see if he's okay or not. Yeah. And did you guys do, because uh, it's interesting, I don't, I mean, I guess games have tackled the idea of cults or like uh, potentially destructive religious uh, ideas and things like that. Right. Um, did you guys do some research of, of modern day cults as you were making this game? Yeah, a ton of it. Uh, I've been fascinated by sort of real world cults uh, yeah. for a long time. Like, there are some games that have done it well. There are more games that have done it just as, like, we need some villains. Let's make them a weird religion or something, and then we can shoot them without thought. Yeah. Uh, this is a little more like, you know, the, the thing about this game is you don't know if the cult members are good or bad, and we sort of change that up every time you play. So you need to think about, if I'm going to go kill these people, you know, what did they ever do to me necessarily? Yeah. I'm kind of breaking into their homes. Should I be killing them? So... Because I think a lot of cult groups, a lot of groups that people call cults, are sometimes sometimes they are dangerous and sometimes they are apocalyptic or whatever and are just looking for some horrible event to happen. But a lot of times they're just like a particular sect or something that has an alternate creed on the Bible or you know whatever their religious source is and just want to do their own thing and aren't going to yeah. hurt anybody who doesn't hurt them, right? Yeah. Um, and, and they just want to be free to pursue whatever their faith is or whatever their politics is or whatever it is. And we might see them as a cult because yeah. they're weird and they don't do what everybody else does. Maybe they don't watch television or, or they, sure. they whatever it is. <laughs> right. Uh, 
So it's easy to call them a cult and then just sort of dismiss them as crazy. But yeah. the interesting thing to be about cult members is they usually start with really good motives. Yeah. Like people don't join a cult. They join a new religion. They join a self-help group. They join a Yeah, something that's promising group. to make them or the world better. Exactly. Way. Usually they're very strong-willed people who yeah. want, want things to be better for themselves, for the world, whatever it is. Um, and I just found that really interesting. And then how does it go wrong? Like, because yeah. when it does go wrong, it can go very wrong. But often it does go wrong. Often it just becomes weird and nobody gets hurt. Um, and maybe people lose their money or something like that. But it's not always the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So I just find that kind of interesting how good intentions can go wrong. Or people can preach something that's a very positive message and have sinister intentions below. Yeah. And it can be hard to tell in yeah. these groups which one they are. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, it's possible it, there's a variable in the way that you play the game. Like, it's possible you might find out that this cult's really not that bad. Right. We designed the game to be replayable, so it has roguelike qualities. Um, so that there's permadeath and there's randomness to the gameplay and procedural generation to, like, some of those systems, but also to the narrative itself. So you don't know which version of the cult you yeah. have, so it becomes a mystery that you play every time based on clues you find, like VO lines that change or notes that you find that change or little scenes you see in the game will change depending on which version of the cult group you have. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so so what do you hope players gain from that experience, from, from kind of stepping into this cult, this world where this cult exists and having to sort of unpack... Right. Whether they should be concerned about their, uh, their your sister or, or your, your, your nephew, your nephew, your nephew who's in this cult. Right. You know, what do you hope players gain from that that adventure, that experience? I mean, I think players can can just have a good time with it, in that it's like a, it's still a game, it's still you know classic like Metal Gear gameplay. People also like being in weird situations, so it's definitely a group that's not like you would see. It's not like everyday life uh, in America or something like that. So. They're entering a weird world and hearing these charismatic creatures saying crazy stuff. Some people will just enjoy that, fundamentally. If you want to go deeper and think about it, think about what you're doing, and and think about some of the themes, it's really about how these situations are complex. And in the game, we have the cult leaders who have pretty progressive views that that might seem positive to a lot of people but might be twisted in what they're doing and seeing how the differences of those things. Then also, as you play the game, you meet different members of the cult who will tell you why they joined, what they're looking for, whether they feel good about its current direction. And you can, usually they'll have a little quest you can do where you get them something they're looking for and and maybe they want to stay and maybe they want to leave. And just seeing... Because, you know, cults aren't uniform either. They usually, like, if it's big enough, they have factions within them. And some people yeah. join for this reason. Some people join for this reason. And seeing how those people interplay can be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, one last question I like to ask game designers is, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? I just think, you know, I, I from a young age, I wanted to be a writer or, or create games or maybe make films or something. Games are the best creative outlet for me because when you're done you can still play the thing yeah. you know because when you write a book uh, it's really agony to look at it anymore at the end because yeah. you know everything about it you're not going to be surprised by anything it's just reading your own stuff and it's still agony to play your own games because you still see bugs and you still yeah. things you want to do but it's still fun like if you can still make it fun for yourself yeah. it's a little less tedious to keep working on it. You just keep yourself engaged because it's still a, a fun, compelling experience. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Uh, one question that I thought of as you were talking earlier that I didn't ask you and I meant to is um, you know, our culture doesn't always do complex. You mentioned 
see that one one of the things you hope people get from the game is that they see people as more complex and the situations and even religion and things as more complex than maybe we see them. I think sometimes where our culture doesn't do nuance and complexity well, is that something that drives you too, is to help people have a more like robust view of things? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of games, you know, I've, I've said for a while, like the reason zombie games are popular is because they're the ultimate enemy in that you can sort of check out of thinking about yeah, it, right. you know, because they're like, they're humans. You're still shooting humans, which is sort of like playing guns as a yeah. kid. Everybody wants to shoot other humans. But they've turned into crazy beasts, so right. you, you're never cured. You only, you got to kill them, you know. Don't yeah. have to think about it. And, you know, Nazis are sometimes used the same way or whatever. Sure. But, and then in other games that have tried to do other enemies, there's always this question of, like, well, why am I... I'm killing a lot of people here. This yeah. feels kind of weird. Yeah. Kind of lets me off the hook. Like, but how off the hook am I for doing this thing? And yeah. often games don't give you a choice to do anything but kill them, right? Right. So, yeah, it bugs me when we say, all these people are bad. Yeah. Stop thinking about why they're like this. Just kill them. That's all you yeah. can do. Um, so here we're saying, we're giving you a lot of tools. The player can go in and decide, these people have crossed a line, so yeah. I don't feel bad killing them. Or they've crossed a line, but I'm not going to kill them because I don't want to go that dark. You know, yeah, I'm still yeah. going to treat them like maybe they can be saved. And in any version of the game, you can play through using lethal methods or non-lethal methods. You can get any of the endings of the game without killing anybody throughout. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's a little harder in places, sure. but we're trying to make sure there's enough systems that it's not like the fun way to play is to kill people and the boring, <laughs> tedious way is to save their lives, right. right? Here, both are fun in different ways. So. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to checking it out. And when can people expect to, to play it? We're working hard to get this done this year, so 2018. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, well, thanks, Richard. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. Matt, tell me your last name. Jackson. Jackson. Okay, cool. And your role with Death uh, Garden? Yeah, so I'm the design director on Death Garden. Cool. And uh, how long have you been in making games? So this is my 13th year making games. Okay, cool. What did you do before Death Garden? So I worked at EA, I worked at Ubisoft, I've worked at a bunch of indie companies, and as well, Behavior currently, Behavior Digital. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so tell me, give me a quick pitch on Death Garden, what makes it unique? So Death Garden is a team versus player, we like to call it, a five versus one, asymmetrical, futuristic blood sport. Okay, so we got a team of five, we're calling the runners. Their goal is to complete objectives to be able to escape the arena or the garden, okay? The hunt, they're played in third person perspective. The hunter, he's the person on the other team, the singular person, he plays from a first person perspective, okay? So his goal is to try to take down runners. And if he's able to do that, he'll win the round. Cool. And uh, what makes it distinct from... Because obviously, uh, Behavior's done uh, Dead by Daylight. So kind of what makes it distinct from other games that have gone that same route of, you know... Is it, this one's 5v1? So we said 5v1, yeah, yeah, 5v1 exactly. So what makes it different from some of the other similar titles? So so with, with uh, Dead by Daylight, uh, as a horror game, it really worked out as that you were playing kind of by yourself. In our game, you really win and you lose as a team. Yeah. And, and, and we really wanted to take that team focus to the next level and kind of build it into the core of our mechanics. Just to give you one example, we have a mechanic which we call marking. And so basically, using the uh, runner weapon, which we're calling a vambrace, it's kind of like a gauntlet, that fires bolts. And those bolts can reveal different crates in the environment. So if I see an ammo crate and I shoot it, that'll be, it will reveal for the whole team. Yeah. So basically, as a team, 
doing things helps, like anything you kind of do helps your team. That's just one example. You know, we have another one where in Dead by Dale, you can't see where the other survivors are. In our game, they're always highlighted in white. So we just kind of built it into all of the core mechanics, that team play. Yeah. Also, our game is a lot faster paced yeah. than uh, Dead by Daylight. It works for them. It's a horror genre. It makes sense. We wanted to make something a bit more fast paced, a bit more focused around, um, like, the runners have a lot of free running abilities, yeah, like, like yeah, yeah. parkour or free running, whatever you want, right, word you right, want yeah, to use. Sure. They're able to climb walls. They're able to climb trees. They're able to run and slide. And the last thing I want to mention is their ability to fight back against the hunter is increased. Now, we still have a hunter that does not take damage. He can't be killed, but, you know, he can be slowed. He can be revealed. He can be stunned. These things are all tools in the arsenal uh, that the runners have to be able to fake out the hunter, to be able to manipulate him so that they can pull off these objectives and win the ranch. Yeah, yeah, cool. And if you had to narrow down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their experience playing Death Garden? Well, you know, it's really those moments, those moments of, of, of emotion that we're trying to create. Like, the difference in perspective from the first and the third is just an example where you create a lot of moments because the hunter doesn't see something doesn't see that there's a runner right next to him and he runs right by and there's there's those those kind of thrilling moments that are fun to play and to be to, to actually control but also fun to watch yeah. because you you know as, as a viewer on twitch or whatever you're viewing it on you can see these things happening and unfolding and be like oh my god i can't believe he didn't see him oh my god i can't you know those types of things so it's really those raw emotions and the, the excitement level that we're trying to pump up and have everywhere yeah that's cool and last question i like to ask developers and designers is why do you make games what what drives you to do this? That's a good question. So I've been in game design ever since I started my career, like I said, 13 years. And really, I make it, you know, I look at games as, some people look at games as art, you know. I look at them as a product, and, it, and that in the most positive way possible. I make them for people. I make them for fans. Our games that I, that I make, that I work on, I want them to be, like, improved or changed based on feedback. And I love interacting that's why I love coming to PAX and conventions interacting with fans interacting with people who like the game and getting their feedback and kind of working with them to make the best product possible it's really rewarding for me yeah yeah that's cool well it, I loved the way it played um, oh, I loved how because I, I really enjoy Death by Daylight but I love how this has such a distinct feel from that it's so fluid and like play, I played it as a runner just now yeah 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 and uh, so even though I lost the second match it just it feels like you have the ability to get to your teammates and help each other yeah. and kind of like, um, you know, pair up uh, and, and work together in a way that 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 was really satisfying to me. So, yeah, that's that yeah. team play, right? That yeah. those things that you that you work together, like you said, the rescuing. It's a really important part. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for showing it to me. It looks great. And when can we have a, uh, a release goal date? I can't. I can't mention that today. We're just still. We're sure. still early in development. We only announced the game last week, actually. Right. Right. But um, if if your your fans want to go to deathgardengame.com uh, and yeah. they can sign up for our closed alpha, and we'll be sending those keys out soon for okay. Steam. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. And will it release on other platforms? So right now we're focusing on the PC version. We really want it to be like as tight as possible, as yeah. solid as possible, as bug free as possible. And then if the community wants it and they they you know they're putting in the hours of play and they're showing that they want it we can definitely consider other platforms, but that'll be like after, you know, cool. down yeah. the road. Cool, awesome. Well, thanks. So City of Brass, it's an yeah. Arabian Nights-inspired action-adventure game. Yeah. 
your goal is to make your way to the centre of the city, which has been come undone by greed and just arrogance. Yeah. So the, the rulers of the city um, enslaved genies and they coveted all this wealth. Didn't want anybody else to get in, so they walled it up and they got themselves cursed. Uh, so this okay. is like a fable from the um, A Thousand One Nights. Okay. From the Arabian Nights, and we took took yeah. the sort of fable and put our game inside of it. So. Okay, cool. So your job is to try and fight your way to the center of the city and lift the curse and free those genies. Yeah. So the main mechanic we've got is you've got a whip and a sword. So it's uh -huh. melee combat, but the whip is more like a tool. So it does sort of contextual interaction with the world and the enemies. So you can push and pull and trip and stun. Yeah. Pick up, pick up. Pull them into traps. And yeah, exactly. Okay, and cool. So you can sort of manipulate the enemies and use, even though the city's set up with all these traps to try and kill you, you can sort of use the city to kill the enemies and like yeah. turn it against itself. Okay. And it's a lot of fun, it's sort of satisfying. Yeah, that's cool. Trick. If you had to choose one thing, narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope players get out of their experience playing City of Brass? Uh, I think the, the satisfaction of using the whip and uh, just how. how uh, you can experiment. It's getting experimentation, yeah. and uh, and that being rewarding. So sort of yeah. re reward players is like trying new things. Yeah. yeah. So kind of dynamic immersion. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's more like a little bit of sandbox. It's not a big open world, but inside yeah. each level is a sandbox of tools. Yeah. You can decide how you use them and right. how you interact. Yeah. Inside that small space, there's lots of different interactions you can do yeah. with enemies and with the world. Yeah. yeah exactly. Cool. Awesome. Uh, and. Uh, what uh, what in, what inspires you in terms of game design? What, what, the, what gets uh, you going? Uh, there's uh, six of us at Uppercut Games, and of those six, five of us work at Irrational Games yeah. in Australia, so on the Bioshock games. And yeah. So we were talking about making a game with a whip, and then the sort of discussions led back to Bioshock and the one-two punch. You had the yeah. Electrobolt and the club, and, uh, that, and we are thinking, why don't we take that sort of rhythmic, dynamic sort of interaction uh, with melee and take yeah. it into a new context and that uh -huh. was sort of like the genesis of the idea for the game and yeah. making the whip like a like a non-damaging tool as opposed to a weapon so yeah, yeah. cool and uh, last question I like to ask designers is why do you make games what 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 drives you to do what you do uh, I think it's just such a creative way to make a living you know, it's so much uh, it's so much fun it's, it's so rewarding when you get yeah. you know, people are playing seeing people play it and enjoy it yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be for, uh, we'll edit it for a podcast, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here with Anna Ribeiro. Did I say your name right? Yes, okay. Anna Ribeiro, yes, you're right. You can say in Portuguese a Ribeiro, but okay. you don't have to do that. It's okay, Ribeiro is just totally fine. Okay. <laughs> and uh, what is your role with Pixel Rip? So I'm the creator, creative director uh, of the game. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it started as my final project then at the NFTS in 2014, and I have yeah. been working for over four years now. And I have a bunch of uh, talent freelancers that work with me, and now I get a publisher in Brazil it's called Arvory, and uh, their focus are just VR, AR. They actually the first VC founded uh, immersive, the first VC company AR, fo just focusing immersive experience from South yeah. America. And yeah, they're now publishing the game, so I finally now have a big team and people helping him and pushing to release yeah, this game. Yeah, it's exciting. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, people can't see this, but you're wearing some pretty awesome cosplay of your own Thank game you. right now. So, so. yeah, um, I think after four years working in this game, I just became the game. It's yeah. taking over my life. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm dressed like Dot. She's the main character. Yeah. So she's a mix of uh, Link from Zelda, uh, Mega Man, Metroid. Yeah. She jumps like Mega Man. She collects pixels like Sonic. It's kind of there's a bunch of reference of all these heroes from the 80s. Yeah, yeah. So the game's clearly influenced by the 80s. Give us a quick pitch uh, of what Pixel Ripped is, what makes it unique. So Pixel Ripped is a video game inception. You're playing a game within the game, and your goal is to beat the game inside the game. Yeah. <laughs> so it will be a series of episodes, but at this one, 1989, you are back in the classroom playing the game in a Game Boy device. But then you have to hide the game from the teacher so you can complete the game because if the teacher catches you three times, it's game over. So it's yeah. like a game within the game. A little bit meta, but yeah. sometimes you are inside the game, sometimes you get out. It, it's always surprising players. That's yeah. So an example that I played of that would be you're playing on your like Game Gear, Game Boy in class and you have to try to complete a level while avoiding the teacher as you're playing it with a VR headset on, so you're, you got the your, you know, your Game Boy in your hand playing it, but then you're also watching out for the teacher, trying to distract her, keep from getting caught playing a game. Yes. Um, so yeah. It's like uh, you're doing two games at once, right? Feel like that, right? right. You have to keep an eye on one game in the console you play, and then also in the world around. Yeah. That's why VR fits perfectly for that. Yeah. It will also works as a time machine for some people. So people like. Really feel throwback in the 80s, and all players had passed through this, right? You want to play a game, you always have something in your way. So that's what Pixel It is about. It's a game about being a gamer. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. It's really interesting. If you had to narrow down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their time playing Pixel Rip? I want them to be throwback. That's like the main goal. I want them to pop up some memories of them playing when they used to play games in when they child, when in their childhood, when in the yeah. 80s, or remember, like being throwback. And if you were not there in the 80s, maybe see how it was and like feel yeah. actually the experience of how it felt to play games at that time. So yeah. that's the main goal. Cool. They're, they're nostalgic. Get the nostalgic feeling. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what's the game development scene like in Brazil? I'm curious. I don't know a whole lot about it. So I just came back to Brazil now. Actually, I was developing. This game started in England when I was at yeah. graduating at this NF, the NFTS. And then I moved to America because I got an accelerator. It's called Boost VC in Silicon Valley and they invested in the game. So I moved to America. Yeah. And then uh, last year in August, I moved back to Brazil. So I'm like now getting used to the market. I met okay, Harvard, sure. that company that yeah. invested in the game. And they ended up moving. And I'm now getting used to the market there and getting to know people yeah. but uh, what I can say about the VR scene is that it's pretty much hard to get headsets there it's really hard yeah. to get dev kits uh, I have like until now like since last year November um, I have like a Microsoft uh, mixed reality headset it's stuck in the customer service yeah so it's pretty hard for developers to access tech yeah. uh, to talk to like here in America, for example, I can go in Sony in person and have a meeting. Yeah. I can go in Oculus and have a meeting and get the headsets. The, all the support you get here, the structure, we don't have that in Brazil. So what we do is when we come to events like that, we talk to them and say, hey, look, we're in America. Can we get some headsets now? So that's what we're doing. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's hard. Extra uh, steps, yeah. Yeah, extra yeah. steps. And then you have to go back to your country with the headset in your suitcase. 
and then it can happen that you go through customers there oh, and they're like, gosh, yeah. well, you have all these headsets and you have to explain, oh, we're developers, we're doing this, and then they can actually be a problem, they can actually yeah, take yeah. it. Mm. So it, actually here, we didn't bring a dev kit, we would be demoing Pixel Rip on PlayStation as well. Oh, right. But because we just have two dev kits, we're like, no, we should keep working in the game. Yeah. Otherwise, people in Brazil would be not working, so right. we ended up... If we, if we were in America, it would be easier, like, we could just get uh, a dev right. kit, yeah. and then we had to basically talk to someone, can we get one for parks, and need to be here, and then it's like, it's not easy to get, like, specific date and location. Yeah, I gotcha. And if we are in America, we just go in PlayStation, get, yeah. a, get a dev kit, and... Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's for me, that's the, the biggest problem I, not, I noticed. The good thing is that in Brazil, the developers are really creative. So we are really uh, easy so, uh, problem solvers. So we call we have this thing we call the Brazilian way. It's the yeah. Jeitinho Brasileiro. Uh -huh. It's kind of unique. I, I didn't know until I left Brazil and then I came back now. So I had to, got to use a lot of work with people from outside. Yeah. So when I come to Brazil, I'm like, it's different. We are Brazilians. That's this is maybe why we're different. Yeah. We got we have this like problem solving thing. We always focus on the solving the problems. Yeah. And we are really um, motivated all the time. Like, yeah. It's like we don't see problems like the way um, maybe other developers we see. Like we we face the problems like oh, it's gonna be okay. We always yeah. have this really good. It's like an opportunity. Five that we always think yeah. everything's gonna be just fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it actually is good for developers. Yeah, it, that's it, cool. It minimizes the, the stress. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one last question I like to ask game designers is why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Because I, I'm having fun. That's yeah. the main thing. I'm having fun and I wanna see people having fun. Being here is the biggest motivation for my work. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing people playing the game, and there was a guy today that said, this is the best game I ever played. I oh. was like, I can't even, Yeah. it's too much. I can't even expect this is Yeah. This is something that it fills your soul. Like, that's why you want to hear that you inspiring people. Like, I heard some people, like I've been for four years working in this game, so now, Sometimes I meet people that come to me and say, I start working VR because of your game. And yeah. this is like a huge motivation. Yeah. Making games that inspire people, make people happy, and having fun during the process. So I'm, yeah. I have been having a lot of fun during these whole four years. Yeah. Because I love developing games. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Well, uh, Pixel Ripped looks and plays great. I just got to play it and really had a lot of fun. Uh, I, I would say there's nothing quite like it, and I think you've done a really good job of, of utilizing VR in really creative ways. Uh, it's super, and it's super colorful and has all those 80s vibes, which are fun to experience as someone who grew up somewhat in that era myself. So, uh, yeah, all the best of luck, and when can people look uh, to to uh, see the release. Do you have a release window? Yes, yeah, 22nd of May is the date. Okay. And you can actually go on any social media, just search Pixel Ripped. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, uh, Instagram. You, we can, you can also put on subs uh, subscribe for the wish list on the Steam page. Just search Pixel Ripped Steam. We are there already. Oh. And we actually got a trailer released by PlayStation the other day on the PlayStation YouTube oh, channel nice. last month. So you can search. There's a new trailer there. And Excellent. Yes, uh, cool. follow up. We are super excited. I'm super excited to release this game. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's great. Thanks.
And uh, your name is Derek, Derek Bradley. Bradley, right? Derek Bradley, and you're the creative director of Ashen. Yes. Okay, cool. So you mind if I ask you a few yeah, questions, absolutely. do a quick interview? Cool. Um, so yeah, give me like the quick pitch. What is Ashen? What makes it unique? Okay. I know we've already talked about some of that, but sure. for now that I'm recording. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, we, we can definitely go through that stuff again. Um, Ashen is an open world game, which sort of sets it apart in that um, it's this good counterpart counterpart to the stamina-based combat, which is really high pressure. Uh, the open worldness is this much more like majestic, uh, relaxing kind of counterpoint, which allows you to go into these high-pressure situations kind of ready for it, and then. Yeah juxtapose it with kind of exploring this, this, this big wide open world which um, leaves you with much more opportunities of yeah. how you're going to tackle um, engagements, combat engagements from full 360 because you're not really getting funneled into them but at the same time a lot of the focus of the open world is like climbing mountains and you know scaling things and like looking over cliffs and finding majestic yeah. giants flying through the world so it's not always about like what's the next thing I need to kill. Yeah. Um, which is yeah, I think it's just a quite quite a nice way to refresh people before we put them into like these deep dark dungeons like what you've just been through. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing would be the passive multiplayer. Um, now that you've played the demo, uh, one of the things you would have noticed is like these two guys up on the uh, on the poster are the are the guys that we were playing as. But the one you would have entered the world as, uh, you can actually create that one, fully curate your look. You know, male, female, uh, hairstyles, hair colors, skin tones, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, but when someone else pops into your world, they actually roleplay one of your NPCs from your town. So yeah. the guy with the moustache and the pipe, you look like that on my end, I look like that on your end. Yeah. Um, and that's because we were playing a Treasure Hunter-themed NPC for each other. Yeah. So um, for us, that's a way that we integrate um, the sense of the quest givers and the townsfolk that you're dealing with who offer you services into the world and that you build a bit of a relationship with them through the players that you happen to meet as yeah. you're kind of um, going through this journey style passive multiplayer yeah. um, and then the passive yeah and so that's one of the things that we talked about earlier that distinguishes this, this as well is a passive multiplayer where you'll be kind of entering other people's worlds or other people might be entering your world and you're not you're not necessarily setting it up it's, it's just sort of happening naturally yeah so what happens is like um different to other games I suppose where you actually go into other people's worlds or you matchmake and go into a world that's not necessarily persistent um, but the worlds are persistent and we just get worlds that are both in the same sort of state that we just join them so you're actually in each other's worlds at the same time okay, yeah. um, anything cool. you find is yours you know you're not right. sort of like doing something temporarily for some XP or something like that um, if you find a, uh, an axe or a new shield or a new spear or anything like that that's kind of just part of your natural flow anyway so yeah. you keep it um but at the same time, yeah, the, 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 I suppose you could say like the, le the lack of friction from uh, getting into that multiplayer scenario means that players are much more likely to help each other out and assist with the tough parts of the game. Yeah. Uh, where there's stuff like if you're like running from some bandits and you're completely overwhelmed and you're just trying to get away, uh, a lot of the time like you'll just see another player kind of run in with their giant hammer and like smack yeah. them. And you haven't asked for that player to necessarily come in, but it's like a really genuine way for two people to meet each other and do yeah. something that's sort of altruistic and like friendly yeah, uh, cool. which is again like how we hope that that kind of flows on through to the town and the people who like we, that the what our narrative designers have put in a story is kind of interacting with what players do with you out in the world yeah quite interesting yeah yeah that's cool that's cool and uh if you had to narrow it down to one thing what do you hope players gain from their time playing ashen oh that's very interesting i it's so tricky because like a lot of the things that we've done are about like uh, catering to different personalities that might want to play it. Um, 
But I think the, the, the thing, like the crux of it, the thing that we did first, and even the reason that our players don't have any faces, was that we started making the game from the environment inwards, whereas a lot of games are made from almost like the, uh, the main character. They'll build that and they'll build a story around it and then they'll build a world around that. Yeah. We went the opposite direction. So more than anything, it's like a world that you can get immersed into that's completely cohesive and consistent in right. itself. Um, that you know you, you can get absorbed into you can get challenged by or you can have like sort of majestic moments with but it's just uh, what we hope is that players will find a place that's quite special to them that you know whether it's after a hard day of work or just that they want to like put a, put a put aside like a few days to just get absorbed into a world yeah. um, they can do that yeah that's cool and uh, last question <clears throat> that I like to ask designers is why do you make games what drives you to, to do this that's a good question because you know to start uh, an indie studio to do all those sorts of things like we left our jobs we did all that kind yeah. of stuff and um, you know at the time uh, we were working at Weta Digital on movies doing that sort of stuff and to leave that um, took a lot of uh, soul searching I guess you could say in that you have to be passionate about games you have to yeah. want to make your own thing and to uh, get into it and actually just enjoy the process of making games which I mean I've played a lot of games in my time yeah. and I've found that I get the same sort of, well, I won't call it exactly the same, but a very shared kind of enjoyment out of making games. Yeah. Um, so it's that genuine drive to be in an environment which allows me to be able to be involved in the interactive nature of games. Um, and it's really interesting. I think making games almost like the interactivity of playing with playing with other people of multiplayer gets this extra layer of it when you're making the game too uh, yeah. which is uh, it's, it's just a really rewarding experience to be able to come back to that every day yeah that's cool and, uh, and where are you from? Uh, we're from New Zealand okay and uh, not a lot of game developers in New Zealand are there? Uh, there are a few, you know, uh, Path of Exile is, okay. is, is a bit of a famous one from down there. Uh, we've got the guys at uh, Weta Workshop have started doing their own stuff too. Okay. So um, there are definitely quite a, quite a few talented game developers. Um, and one of our biggest industries being uh, film, we, yeah. we get a lot of really talented artists and things like that from that part yeah. of the industry too. That's cool. And I, uh, I noticed like, it feels like a really ambitious game to me. Um, how, I'm curious, how big is your team? How many people are working on this? Uh, yeah, certainly. Like, what we've done here is something that people would tell you to never do if you're making yeah. your first game as an indie studio to make like open world multiplayer <laughs> game. But uh, it's really worked out for us. We've been very fortunate. Um, our team is at uh, 38 people in house right now. You could call it 40 if you count our sound designer and our and our um, composer who yeah. who aren't in house. But yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And and when can we expect to see this? Uh, so it'll be Q3, Q4 this year. Okay, awesome. Well, I can't wait to, to uh, play more of it because what I saw has really piqued my curiosity. So it'll be, definitely be uh, paying attention to it. So. Thanks so much for listening to part one of a three-part series of developer interviews, game designer interviews. Be sure to go search for Love Thy Nerd on Facebook. Check out our Facebook group. Also be sure to check out the Free Play podcast, which is um, just a wonderful podcast in the Love Thy Nerd podcast network. Um, those guys are awesome. It's really fun to listen to. Uh, and, and just a, a total different feel than this podcast, which I think is a good thing. So go check that out, and uh, otherwise, we'll see you soon. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's DrewDixon82. If you want to email me questions or comments about the, the podcast, send those to Drew at lovethynerd.com. 
Also, be sure to go rate and review our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen to it on Spotify, so go follow us on Spotify as well. Um, And that's it for us in this podcast. We'll see you again next week.